you're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Raymond Pierre Hilton from Virginia Union and Dr. Maria Leot from Marsh's Library. Their paper was entitled The Mercantile Element in Dublin's Huguenot Refuge and Its Catalytic Effect, 1650 to 1750. Between 7,000 and 10,000 Huguenot immigrants made their way to Ireland during the century spanning the years 1650 to 1750 in three distinctively motivated waves of immigration. These influxes have been designated as the early Ormondite group, roughly covering the years 1660 to 1680, the late Ormondite group, 1681 to 1691, and the Ruvignac or Galway group, circa 1692 to 1720. The stress their Calvinist faith placed on individual knowledge of the scriptures ensured that theirs would be a far more literate refuge than all than most other immigrant group, and hence that they would tend to hold a more cosmopolitan outlook and thus generally be all the more prone to integration and assimilation into the host society. Their literacy, and hence their educational level, would have made them generally more amenable to outside influences and more able to communicate effectively with their anglophonic hosts, which would contribute to the assimilatory process. But the situation is rendered more complex in that each of these three groupings collectively brought in its wake a different perspective on assimilation, One would assert that assimilation by incoming groups into a host society is dependent on a certain mindset, i.e., the acceptance of a permanent break with the motherland and full realization that there could be no going back. For the early Ormondite group, this acceptance was present from the beginning, for it was motivated by free choice, by a perceived advantage in settling in Ireland, but the late Ormondite group was compelled by the necessity of flight from persecution, and the Galway group both necessity and perceived advantage. And thus, for the two latter groups, the acceptant mindset and assimilation only solidified by degrees only over the course of time. With the advantage of hand hindsight, and uh, it can reasonably be surmised that the TD of Reichswick ending the War of the League of Augsburg and the failure of the Allies to compel Louis XIV to modify his stance against the Huguenot faith, rendered permanent the exile for French Protestants who refused to abjure their religion. But, of course, contemporary cognizance of this was a far different matter. Among the classes of individuals who comprised the Huguenot dispersion societal makeup in Ireland, it would have been the mercantile, financier, investor element which would have had the most profound outreach and interaction with the Anglophonic population. Much has been written about the role of the noble and military elements within the Huguenot communities which were established in Ireland, uh, uh, among others by the two presenters. Uh, but the mercantile contribution has been rel- comparatively uh, understated. It was in Dublin that we discover both the largest pop concentration of Huguenot settlers and the most substantial French Protestant mercantilist population. 
Yet even before the establishment of the recognized Huguenot community in Dublin, and then most certainly during the third and fourth Ormond vice regencies of 1662 to 1669 and 1677 to 1685, Huguenot merchants had already assumed a significant role. Later, this became even more the case for refugees who poured into the capital in the wake of the Earl of Galway's rise to power in the 1690s and beyond. We will demonstrate how a sampling of these underreported Huguenots took an initiative in forging links with the wider community and, by example, melded their own community into it, whether inadvertently or otherwise. Among the benefits that the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, James Butler, First Duke of Ormond, sought to derive from the Huguenot immigrants he actively encouraged during his third, third vice regency were their business connections, networking facilities, and entrepreneurial expertise. The wording of the 1662 Irish parliamentary statute, quote, for encouraging foreign Protestants and others to establish themselves in Ireland, unquote, is slanted especially towards ensuring advantageous conditions for settlement for both the mercantile and, to be sure, professional elements. These advantages included when the settlers swore the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, automatic naturalization, and, upon payment of a 20 shillings fine, the freedom of the city of Dublin if they resided there, the right to enter guilds and corporations without payment, and the tax exemption for seven years. It meant that they were free to establish businesses legally, have full rights to trade and work, and employ apprentices. The principal beneficiary element in the consequent early Ormondite Huguenot colony was the mercantile. Of the 38 families whose occupations are known to us, 15 were mercantile. Surnames included Bazin, Bernois, Boyer, Choisin, Cosard, Damour, Delangle, De Saint-Croix, Des Minières, Du Chemin, Du Pain, Lafarrière, Le Moine, Michel, and Pain. Seven of these families were from Normandy, mainly from the port of Rouen. An additional Rouenais merchant family, kind of an aside, passing as Huguenots were the Pereres of Pères, but they seem to have actually been Jewish in their Protestantism, little more than cosmetic. The exemplary trailblazers for these Huguenots, who earlier on accepted the notion that their families' exile from France might be lengthy or even permanent, and sought to best cope by blending into the civic, social, and economic mainstream, were the de Minières family. Some members of the family had already established themselves in Dublin as early as 1639, perhaps even 1631, during the vice regency of the Earl of Strafford. Daniel and Jean de Minière had mercantile and residency connections in Rouen, Amersfoort, and Utrecht, and Dublin, of course. What is amazing about the de Minières is not only their swift acclimatization, but also how quickly they rose to prominence in local affairs. For example, Jean de Minière became a sheriff in 1654 and warden of the Merchants Guild from 1655 to 56. And both Jean and Louis de Minière had become aldermen by 1656. In 1666, Jean de Minière became Lord Mayor of Dublin and the second individual to hold that particular distinction, presiding over appropriately the opening of the French Church of St. Patrick's Cathedral, the first such church in Ireland, and Louis would hold the same office of Lord Mayor in 1669. 
But the Deminiers rarely associated themselves with the French church or with the Huguenot community. By 1672, they had ceased speaking French even at home and worshipped at St. Odian's church behind Christ Church Cathedral. Louis was also established as a maltster and brewer by 1680, when during the course of six years he paid out the fees of six pounds and ten pence for a pipe water supply. In 1664, Jean de Minière was placed in charge of a lottery held when parcels of land around Oxmantown Green were opened to private development. He received lot number seven and Louis lot number 16. In 1684, Jean and Louis similarly received plots on the Strand and even earlier plots around St. Stephen Green, an area of intense Huguenot investment. Uh, the Deminier became extensive property owners. So well ahead of the persecution of Protestants in France, well before the time it reached its apex, some Huguenots had already planted solid roots in Ireland thanks to their mercantile activities. Both Deminier were perhaps not above being chancers, or at least rather neglectful. Now, both Jean and Louis rather victimized and amassed debts to an unfortunate named John Price, who complained that he was owned 14 pounds, nine pence by Jean for candles delivered in 1665. But in spite of not being paid, the idiot was foolish enough to deliver 20 pounds, 18 shilling, and five pence of candles to Louis in 1669. It took him nine years litigation and petitioning to the corporation to collect on the first debt and nearly five years to collect on the other. It wasn't settled until the uh, 22nd January, 1674. In 1689, both Jean and Louis were expelled from the Dublin Alderman Council, but Jean was reinstated after the Williamite conquest. But thereafter, the Deminier family slowly fades from the record. It would be intriguing to speculate about an early Huguenot international network developing even at this early date, but this cannot be substantiated since the early Ormondite Huguenot community, already existing on fragile ground, was abruptly subsumed by waves of their co-religionists who poured into Ireland in the wake of the humanitarian crisis of 1681 to 1685. Uh, and they formed the late Ormondite colonization. The early Ormondite settlement had been a genuine immigration based on personal choice. The late Ormondite and the subsequent Rouvignac influence were, on the other hand, true refugee situations, composed of individuals forcibly and conscientiously compelled to abandon their homeland. The Poitou Dragonnades of 1681 precipitated the heavy persecution of French Calvinists capstoned by Louis XIV's legal extinction of the Huguenot faith through the Edict of Fontainebleau of 17 October 1685, which is better known here as the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. This group of Huguenots fleeing France for Ireland were far greater in number and more diverse than the early Ormondite group. Although 15 mercantile families can be identified of a, of, out of a total of 178, these are offset by the other 163. Now, the entrepreneurial spirit must be said had very little time to establish itself, given the turbulent events of the decades 1681 to 91. Uh, the unexpected refugee influx into Dublin gave rise to housing and employment problems, resentment from established Anglophones, 
and confessional classes with the powers in office at Dublin Castle, the Duke of Ormond and his son and deputy, the Earl of Arran. Then in a rapid turn of events, the succession of James II and Ormond's eclipse, Tyrconnell's rise in 1687, the revolution and the war of the two kings disrupted and even temporarily decimated the Huguenot community in Dublin. However, the stability that was achieved from 1692 on made possible an atmosphere that enabled Huguenot expatriates to come gradually to terms with the finality of exile. My colleague, uh, Dr. Marie Leoutre, has examined how Dublin's mercantile families within the Galway group adapted and led the way in outreaching, interrelating, and assimilating with their anglophonic neighbors. Thank you. In 1692, the Act for Encouraging Protestant Strangers confirmed the advantages of the 1662, with the added bonus of free exercise of Calvinism. Again, let me stress that naturalization brought economic advantages, the right to hold real property, exemption from customs and corporate duties. This would have been very attractive to those who had wealth, and especially merchants. One of William's trusted Huguenot commanders had been Henri de Ruvigny, better known as the Earl of Galway. During his two terms as Lord Justice, 1697 and to 1701, and then in 1715 to 1717, he endeavored to promote his co-religionist uh, as Ireland's de facto viceroy. His ascent witnessed the apogee of the Huguenot refuge as far as numbers, economic clout, and political influence were concerned. At the same time, Shipping and population statistics show that between 1690 and 1720, Dublin mushroomed. This offered opportunities for Huguenot merchants with international connections. For example, um, family members who would have stayed in France but converted to keep property would have been uh, an obvious link. And also a lot of um, family members would have gone to the Netherlands on their way to Dublin. As Professor Hilton just illustrated, French Protestant exiles who possessed some capital and or pre-existing connections abroad were more likely to succeed in exile and integrate or assimilate in the earlier period under review. My contribution will essentially demonstrate that this pattern continued to be true after the revocation, regardless of the changing circumstances in Ireland and well into the 18th century. The Act for Encouraging Protestant Strangers was revived without interruption under the reigns of William III, Queen Anne, and George I, under whom it was finally made perpetual. So I will mostly look into the interlinked families of Gachet, Mignon, and Urk, as they provide an example of Huguenot mercantile integration over a few generations. Um, César Gachet was a sugar merchant from Nantes in Brittany, who settled in Ireland around 1720. At the time, um, the Irish had developed a taste for French sugar and the market was expanding. And many French settlers in Dublin were in the sugar trade, so we have names such as Darquier, Dornan, Morin, Pomerade, Nérac, Ardouin, and Seguin, just to name a few. Um, and these people were also able to bring money with them, um, which they entrusted to Huguenot banks, such as the Latouche and the Lunels. Um, most of these sugar merchants were uh, in Bordeaux, so again, it's always on the coast. So links are easy. Also, to just give you an idea of the context, um, in 1718, the Régent um, for Louis XV, Louis XV dies and um, persecution is renewed 
at that time. So it's also a good incentive to leave France, really. César Gachet uh, managed to move rather well, as he was described in several sources, as a wealthy sugar merchant in Dublin. He married uh, Deborah Sharp, who is a Quaker, um, in 1726. The Sharp connection was attractive for a Huguenot merchant because they belonged both to the Dublin mercantile class and the dissenting community. Whether César Gachet knew the Sharps before settling in Ireland, I have been unable to find, but it's probable. César was later followed by his nephew Pierre Mignon of Toulouse, who joined him in Dublin and also became a, a merchant and sugar boiler. César and Deborah Gachet had a daughter, Mary, who unsurprisingly married her cousin, Pierre Mignon, in 1756. So sorry, I'm giving you a lot of names, but that's the, the chart there. Also, a collateral incidence of exile is that it opened up more avenues for large-scale trade. Um, we also have the, the Boyd family, um, who had connections in France, Ireland, and even to America, who um, had a tavern in Oxmantown, the place we just discussed. So, wonderful example of global and trading venture spurred by exile. So this is why, in this context, the marriage of César Gachet to a Quaker is unlikely to be a complete coincidence. It is probable that César had made the connection with the non-conformist community in Dublin via his trade prior to the revocation, and naturally made the move there when persecutions in France became intolerable. One thing that we find out is that the Huguenot merchants uh, reinvested their wealth. Pierre Mignon obtained two pieces of ground on Lazers Hill in Dublin, in uh, 1761, just there on the map. These properties were abandoned on the east by Peter Sagan's holding, I quote. Uh, Peter Sagan, I mentioned him before, was also a merchant in Dublin, a sugar baker, and the associate of a certain Gaspar Irk. Sagan was the son of Paul Sagan of La Capade in Aquitaine, who had settled in Ireland in 1725. Uh, Peter Sagan was later granted arms, which highlights his status within the uh, Dublin community. This Laser Hill area, it's now Misery Hill, by the way, um, is ideally located in the vicinity of Dublin Bay and appears to be a hub for Huguenot mercantile activity in the very early uh, 18th century. Pierre Mignon's brother, uh, Jack or Jacob Mignon, was also a merchant and sugar boiler, you can see the theme here, um, was able to acquire premises, which again suggests that the Huguenots were doing really well. On Longford Street, which is close to St. Stephen's Green. These properties were developed by another Huguenot, David Diggs Latour Sr., uh, between 1720 and 1735. Last generation, I promise. Mary and Pierre Mignon <laughs> had a daughter in 1763 named Jane Martha, and she married to, uh, she got married to John Kaya Irk. Um, he was the son of Gaspar Irk, a merchant who was involved in the sugar refining industry and who immigrated in Ireland in 1735 after spending time in Germany. So you can see these people don't necessarily come to Ireland straight. So they have the time to establish connections in other places. Jane Marta and John were leasing a dwelling house on Little Longford Street and a warehouse and a vault on nearby Goat Alley in 1790, which suggests that they were still trading at that time. We can see a pattern emerging 
uh, of endogamic marriages, which is a bit paradoxical, but um, so it was not only within the same faith, but also within the same mercantile group. And at the same time, and that's what is paradoxical, over just a few generations, we see that these Huguenot merchants acquired property and became more and more integrated and assimilated. Um, none of the sources that I've consulted um, were totally in French. So some of them were bilingual, but most of them were in English from very early on. Um, the family, this particular family, continued to flourish, acquired more property. They became um, substantial property owners in County Wicklow, um, expanded, passed down assets from one generation to the next, um, and it appears that they left the mercantile circle as they grew wealthier, so they became essentially gentry. Um, and also, I think the context is, is, is quite important here. Um, the sugar trade was also slowly smothered by uh, English restrictive legislation, so perhaps there was a necessity there as well. Um, so just a few words to conclude, and I hope I still have the time. Um, among the Huguenots who immigrated to Ireland, whether in pursuit of economic opportunity or in the aftermath of persecution in France, it was the mercantile element which had the most interaction with the Anglophonic population and acclimated the fastest. Merchants were very often involved in early banking and finance, which also helps to integrate and quite a few turned investors and property developers, thereby planting roots in Ireland. And indeed, the acquisition, development, and transmission of land and property by a group of refugees provide, I think, a good indicator to gauge the level of integration um, or assimilation into a host society. So just to sum up, among the factors which explain the rapid integration and success of Huguenot merchants uh, in Ireland were the 17th century legislation, which enabled them to uh, join guilds and become citizens relatively easily because that favored traders and artisans over non-skilled or other refugees. And indeed, if you, if you look at petitions for relief um, of Huguenots to the government, they, most of the time you don't see merchants signing these petitions. It's, it's rather destitute nobility or exiles with uh, less wealth, such as lab laborers or people like that. The merchant families of Deminières, Gachet, Mignon, and Erc were successful enough to become recognized in their trades and valued members of their host community. Um, as we said, the Deminières were mayors, aldermen, and um, Peter Seguin was granted arms, and the Ercs um, got a lot of property. This success translated into investment, uh, especially in the later period. And again, just a word on context on this um, Dublin became the second capital of the empire from the early uh, 18th century. So the time at which the second family uh, under review here arrived was also fairly, the, the circumstances were fairly good for them to settle there. So although the level of endogamic marriages seems high, there is all indication that merchants were turned towards the outside community. Business seems to have been conducted through English solely, and despite the initial connection with the centers, the family discussed here conformed to Anglicanism fairly quickly, fairly quickly. So after a few generations, they were still Huguenots by name, but they had become full members of um, the Anglo-Irish um, group. Thank you.